So the text that Jeff just read was one that David wrote at the time in his life where we are in 1 Samuel. And I don't know if you picked up on some of the things that he was saying where he is saying that I looked upon you beholding your glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My soul will be satisfied with you as with fat and rich food. That at this point in David's life, he was looking to God who was his everything. Last week, uh, as we've been working our way through 1 Samuel, we came to the story of uh, uh, Saul calling a witch to call up the ghost of Samuel. And I had someone after the service that talk, was talking to me, and they, they were joking, and, and, and the person is in the room, so I don't want you to think I was offended, but they said something along the lines of, um, you know what, preacher, only you could take a verse about a witch and a ghost and make it the same sermon you preach every Sunday. And I'm like, well, I don't know exactly how to take that. Uh, and I, as I thought about that thought, there's some truth in that you could listen to the sermons that I've been preaching in 1 Samuel and go back to the sermons that I preached in Galatians and go back to the sermons that I preached last spring in Luke and then go back to before that the sermons that I preached in 1 Thessalonians and back a couple of years when I preached through James. And you're going to get the same theme because it's the same theme that runs from end to end in the Bible. You see, the story of the Bible starts out with man having hosed everything up, running from God, and God chasing him down. Adam hiding in the garden and God having to come looking for him. That is the story of the Bible. Forty-three times God makes this. In the Old Testament, it's a prophecy. In the New Testament, it's it's the prediction. 43 times God says, I'm going to find me a people. I will be their God, and they will be my people. That is the summation of what the Bible says. There are story after story after story in the Old Testament of people running from God, and whether they liked it or not, God's saying, that person is mine. I'm going to keep him through adultery, through murder, through idolatry, through all sorts of evil wickedness. God overcoming our weakness and saying, those people are mine. And in the New Testament, God pursuing us with love. I mean, think about your life before you got saved. Were you looking for God? In fact, the Bible goes so far as to say there is none that seek after him. No, not one. We don't want God in our life. We are so silly and stupid that we will go our own way and destroy everything and not look back twice. And so God has to break into our lives and say, No, no, I love you so much I'm not going to let you do that. We run, we run, we run, and God chases us down and he pulls us close. The other day, Garrett and I were joking, talking about how we had similar experiences. Garrett got stuck in an elevator uh, at Gulf Shores where God was trying to teach him something. And I was telling him the story of at the house last 
Friday, I had gone over to my mom and dad's, and we, uh, we'd weed-eated and cut the grass and, and come back late, and you're tired, and you're hot, and you know, you're, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'll get in my head, what I really want to do is, and y'all don't tell anybody I said this, I want to stick these kids in front of the TV, and I want to go away for just a little bit. Have you ever had that kind of a thought process? I mean, am, am I a bad person? I mean, I know I'm a bad person, but... Uh, <laughs> You look at the family and go, all y'all, I love you. I want to love you from afar. Uh, I'm really looking forward to missing you. Can you go someplace else? Um, And so that was that kind of, you know, I'm tired, I'm hot, I'm ready for the day to be done. And we walk into the house and as, uh, actually I hadn't gotten in the house because somebody from the church called me and I'm out talking on the phone and Ann comes out and goes, you need to get in the house. And I'm like, well, just give me a minute for the love. Can I breathe here? And I'm trying to talk on the phone and I get off the phone and I go in the house and in the kitchen, the windows, it looked like a scene out of uh, the poltergeist. I mean, every window's got like a thousand flies bumping up against the window. And I'm like, what in the world is going on here? I'm thinking something's died in the house, something, some, something's gone wrong, and we're, I'm looking around, I'm trying to figure out where the flies even got in and what's happening, and I'm standing in a hall that we never use, um, and I look down the hall at an exterior door, and I can see light through one of the panels. And I'm like, well, that ain't right. And so I walk down to the edge of that hall to see what it was, and as I lean over to touch the panel to see what it is, I fall through the floor, and my hand goes through the panel. It was so rotten that when I just hit it a little bit, it goes through. And so I pulled the, some of you saw on Facebook the picture, I pulled the vinyl, rolled the vinyl back, and there was just a whole section of that floor that was just rotted out, where it had been leaking underneath that door, where the door was rotten. And I, not what I'm planning on doing. So I'm not in a good mood. We, we had actually planned on that night going to, to a, uh, go to the drive-in movie and see Incredibles 2, which I still haven't seen, so don't tell me how it ends. Um, and so, uh, so we, I, I, I'm, I, I, and I, when I, something like that happens, for some reason, I take, have a tendency to take it out on everybody around me. And, and I'm like, oh, y'all just leave me alone so I can get to work on this. And I go get a 16-pound sledgehammer, and I start tearing out floor. I mean, right, right there, it's 8 o'clock at night, and I'm cutting floor out, and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And the subfloor there is like, Five feet is the most awkward height possible. So if you're standing on the floor, the floor joists are like right here where you can't do anything, but it's not quite low enough to where you have to get on a ladder. And so I tear out the floor, and then I, I next morning get up, and we tear the door out. And so now i got a big hole in the, you know, where the door is supposed to be, and it's 1,000 degrees outside. And, so, and, and whenever I walk by the opening, I can feel cool air hit me from where the air conditioner is running, and I'm thinking in my mind, well, you know, that's $100 right there, just hitting me right in the face. And <clears throat> so I go and I get uh, the subfloor, uh, we, we, we get it in, I cripple in some, some pressure-treated lumber, and I get, get a piece of pressure-treated plywood, and, and, and you know, and it's, those houses, they're right in an actual 90-degree angle anywhere in them, so you've got to measure and cut and measure and cut and take it back out and cut. And we get it to where it's just ready to fit. I mean, I, I, I can t- taste it. It's going to fit. And we can't get it quite in there, and I'm standing on the edge. Try, I'm not going to do it too hard on this because this floor will fall in. But I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to shuffle it in, and it's not working. So I get William to take a 2 by 4 and lie across that, that plywood, and I'm going to pick up and drop the end down here. And I'm like, son, you just bang on that 
that piece of two by four that's pushed up against the plywood. So he's bang, bang, bang. And then where it should be another bang, I don't hear anything. And I look up just in time to see that hammer coming right toward me because he had missed the board and slung it between his, his legs. And so he catches me in the ribs. And he thinks it's funny because he doesn't realize it actually hurts to get hit with a hammer. And so my, my son, who claims to love me, is sitting there laughing. <laughs> And I'm going, oh, dear Lord, he broke my body. And, and so I go lay in the driveway, and I'm just laying there. And, of course, the dog comes and licks me in the face. And, and Ann does the typical wife think you okay? No, I'm not okay. Leave me alone. I'm spitting up blood for the love. And, and it's just, I'm just done. And so I take the plywood back out, and, and we trim it. And while I'm cutting that, you know, eighth of an inch off so it'll fit I'm begging God oh God please let this cut work and in those kind of moments I don't have any problems praying I don't have to have a reminder on my phone to tell me to pray and that's exactly why God puts us in those moments see I've used the analogy before and I I, I, you may not like it, I really like it. And it's that when, when my kids were little, they would run off. We'd be in Walmart or whatever, and they'd run to go look at the toy section or something like that. I, I didn't, wasn't concerned about them, me not being able to see them. What I was concerned with is that there's a big bad world out there that's going to crush them. There's some scary stuff out there in that world. They don't know it. They don't understand it, and part of my job is to protect them from knowing what it is and to protect them from that world. And so what I would do when they ran off is I would go get them and bring them back, and then I would hurt them so that they knew, you're to be on my leg, child. And I loved them enough to where I was willing to spank them so that they would stay right on me. Not because I didn't want them to have fun. Not because I thought that they were stupid and going to run out in the road necessarily at that age. I knew that there were things out there that was going to crush them, was going to chew them up and spit them out. And so I whooped them, as we say in Alabama, and said, you stay on my leg because I love them. That's exactly what God is doing to us. When we wander off because something shiny and pretty is going on, God goes and gets us and whoops us and says, you stay on me. There's some scary stuff out there that will eat you alive. We are dependent on God whether we admit it or not. If you think that you're a self-made man or woman, you're a fool. I worked under the illusion for years that nobody gave me nothing. Everything that I've got, I earned it. And that's arrogant, and that is foolishness. Because God gave me the backbone to be able to work. He gave me the intelligence to be able to get a job. And then God sustained me day after day after day. And it just takes a little bit to remind us that our sense of self-control that we have is fake. I look around this room, and some of you, I've stood at your side in an emergency room, and you felt that. 
I remember this last March having a group of youth in Jacksonville. And we were doing disaster relief cleanup. And I drugged them all in these people's home into their kitchen. And all around that kitchen they had fancy appliances. And they had all the things that they had out for cooking supper that night. And if you looked up in that kitchen you saw sky. And so in one moment... That sense of security that I'm in control, I pay a mortgage for this house, this house will protect me, is gone. We've all had those 3 a.m. phone calls that just turns your stomach before you answer the phone where God reminds us you're not in control of anything. And so the Bible tells us story after story after story after story of people who run from God and disobey Him and are therefore punished and have to deal with the consequences. Other people who cling tightly to God and He, like a mother hen bringing in her chicks around her, cares for them, overcomes the storms, looks the enemy in the face and says, you're not messing with one of mine. And those, all those stories are there to tell us He is your God. You are His people. Cling tightly to Him. We want some big, vast, fancy system with how to do that. If you go to Lifeway right now, about 80% of the books are junk, and they're going to tell you. In fact, let me just tell you a little secret. If you go to buy a Christian book and the word new is on the cover, don't buy it. A new way for you to walk with. A new that. Now, if it's new, then I, you don't want to have anything to do with it because it's fake. The Bible gives us really clear instructions with what we have to do to cling tightly to Him. The only problem is, is we're way too smart to obey it. There are four things that the Bible tells us to do to walk with Him. And you know what? You learned all four of them in Sunday school when you were a little kid. You sang songs about them in VBS while you were drinking that watered-down Kool-Aid, and eating those little vanilla cookies. You know what they are. You're not going to be able to walk with God if you're not spending time in prayer. If you read the Bible every day, but you're not laboring in prayer, what you'll become is an arrogant know-it-all that nobody wants to be around. So the first one is you've got to pray. You've got to talk to God. You've got to lay your burdens out with Him. Again, in those moments, Garrett, did you have any problem remembering to pray when the lights went out in that elevator? Those moments when we have need, we have no problem crying out to God. But it's day by day by day by day when the sun is shining and everything's going well. That's when we need to learn the habit of talking to God about our needs. You've got to pray. You've got to be around other Christians, and you've got to be real with them. I, in my notes, I called it, you've got to be churching. God set up His church as a place where we can come and be real with people who can speak into our lives and we speak into their lives. If you're coming to this church on Sunday morning, and you're getting here just as the service starts, and you leave right as the invitation starts, you're not getting all that there is to get from this church. 
It's getting to know people, getting to love people, having people that you can call up and say, I need to pray with you. I need you to pray for me. It's having people in your life who are reflecting Christ at you. You've got to have that to be able to walk in this Christian walk. So you've got to be in prayer. You've got to be around other believers. You've got to be giving your faith away. How many times did you sing in VBS or Sunday school? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. We don't tell anybody our faith. We don't expose the people that we work to to what we believe. We're afraid that we're going to be labeled a hypocrite. We're afraid that we're going to be labeled something else. But you know what? If you're not giving your faith away, your faith is probably not real. There's a compulsion to us who are in Christ to share with people what God's doing. Again, the example that I use, I guarantee you, if you're an Auburn fan in this room, after the kick six, nobody had to call you and say, I think you need to share with your friends that something exciting happened to your life. No! I'm, I know a bunch of you. It was on my feed. Some of you, and that's the last time Auburn did anything right, I still hear about it. If something's real in your life, something's having an impact in your life, you can't help but talk about it. So you've got to be praying. You've got to be churching. You've got to be giving your faith away. And then what we saw last week in the message that I preached about the, the whole witch and all that stuff, what we learned from that is go to God's Word if you need direction. You've got to be in the Bible. You've got to be in God's Word. You've got to give God an opportunity to speak to you. And I'm not... Don't pick up somebody else's Bible study and call it your own. Read the Bible. I can't tell you the number of times that in my life I've gone to a Bible study and they say, I think we should read this book by insert name here. I don't want to pick any names. Whoever it is. Beth Moore, John Piper, John MacArthur, whoever. And I've actually had people give me a shocked look when I said, why don't we read Romans? Why don't we read Ephesians? The difference between a baby and as my kids grew up is I didn't have to feed them anymore. If William came in and brought me his steak and said, can you cut this up and feed this to me? I would think that he had something mentally wrong with him. And yet we as Christians think that if it's not pre-prepared, pre-cooked, and somebody's handing it to me on a spoon, then I can't consume it. I'm here to tell you that you have the priesthood of believers. You have the Holy Spirit as your teacher. This is what you need. Get off the baby food and feast. Grow in Christ. Feed on God's Word. This is what sustains you. And I've had real-life Christians tell me, well, I read it before. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. That's like saying I'm going to put my phone on to charge, and once it says 100%, I never have to use the charger again. Now you've got to charge it every day. That's like saying, leaving top of the river and going, oh, my gosh, and then never eating again and wondering why you're hungry. I don't care how much coleslaw, cornbread, and catfish you eat at, at top of the river tonight. It may be tomorrow night, but you're going to be hungry again. 
your body's going to start crying out for sustenance. You've got to be in God's Word on a regular basis. Now, some people have said to me, and I believe that it's true, that in a lot of ways the church has failed you. We haven't taught you how to read God's Word. So what I want to do today is I want us to take the story that we have in 1 Samuel, and I want to tell you how I read it. This is not the only way, but how I will read this story. Now, any text of the Bible that I read, I want you to first of all realize that the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit is your teacher. So before you read the Bible, the first thing you need to do is say, God, I need you to teach me. I need you to open the eyes of my heart that I can see wonderful things from your word. So the first step in reading God's word is to pray. As I'm reading the text, I ask three questions, and we're going to ask them today. Those three questions are, what does this say about God? What does this say about man? And how does my life change because God put this text in the Bible? So those are the three questions we're going to ask. I'm going to tell us the story. If you were sitting at home, you would read it. And then we're going to go back over and ask those questions of the text. So this is a cool story. Remember we left with... um, Saul being told by Samuel's ghost, that sentence is so weird to say, but Saul being told by Samuel's ghost, you and your sons are going to die, it's all going to fall apart, you have forsaken God and now he's forsaken you, bye. That's how that story ends. So we pick back up with David, we've walked away from David, and so the, the narrator here picks back up with David and says, now when the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. Remember, what has happened is, is you've got, in, within five miles of each other, you've got all of Israel's armies preparing for battle, and you've got all the Philistines' armies preparing for battle across a big valley from each other. So all the Philistines are preparing for battle. Remember, David is in a situation where he is trying to feed 600 men and their families that are all moving around with him. And so Saul, every time he went back to Israel, Saul pursued him, tried to kill him, put him in a bad situation. So he's joined forces with the Philistines. He's kind of said to himself, I'm just going to wash my hands of what God said I would be the king, I'm going to go work with the Philistines. And so now the Philistines are about to go to battle. They've called all hands. They're about to go to battle to the Israelites. And David apparently is so trying to, to do the day to day to day and frustrated that he's not king yet, that he's willing to join with the Philistines and fight against the Israelites. But... As he marches by in front of all the lords of the Philistines, they lean out and go, who are they? Well, the lord that he had pushed up himself with and aligned himself with says, well, that's David. He's been serving me. He's been doing what I've been asking him to. He's a good guy. You don't have to worry about him. And all the Philistine guys said, I don't think so. Do you not remember him killing Goliath? Isn't he the one that they sang the songs of Saul? He has his thousands of David. He has his ten thousands. He is not fighting with us. Because in their mind, they think, if he's on the rear guard, he's going to end up chopping off some of our heads. No, it's not going to happen. So the Lord that David had aligned himself with calls David up, says, hey, David, come here. And David comes up and he says, hey, I was talking with the other guys. You ain't staying. You need to go. 
And David is like, what? What have I ever done to deserve this? He argues for his ability to be able to fight against the Israelites. The guy says, I'm sorry, it's not up to me. These other guys have said, no way, no how. So I guess you're done. Go home. So David turns around, marches back to where he's staying. And it was not a short march. They get there. uh, And just as they get there to Ziklag, they find that the Amalekites, which is a different group of people, had raided that particular area. Now, the text tells us that they hadn't killed anybody, but they had gathered up, they'd burnt the city with fire, and they had gathered up everybody, including all of the men that were with him's wives, including David's wife. Wives. So they go in hot pursuit. Now, remember, they've just marched four days, and remember also that they didn't, they didn't have trucks. I know when I was in the Marine Corps, I was in an artillery unit, and if, if you couldn't put it on a truck, it didn't get moved. But they weren't that way. They had walked. So they had walked. They get there, find out that there's a raid, and they're a few days behind, and off they go in pursuit. Exhausted, tired, not knowing what to expect. They end up finding an Egyptian guy who is running from them, and they capture him. And they ask this Egyptian guy, hey, man, uh, what's going on? And the guy, guy says, well, look, I'll tell you what's going on, but I need you to promise me that you're not going to kill me. This guy didn't have a whole lot of allegiance to the Amalekites. So they feed him, they give him something to drink, they give him some orange juice, they give him an MRE, and then he tells them all what's going on, and they said, will you lead us to him? And they said, absolutely, I will, if you'll keep me from dying. It's all about protecting his own skin. So they go to head off, and of David's 600, 200 of them say, we're done, we can't go anywhere anymore, we're exhausted. So David leaves them to watch the luggage so that they can book faster, and off they go. They end up coming up on the, the Amalekites, and the text kind of words it funny. It says um, that they were partying. They were so excited that they had won. It says that they were spread abroad all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. So he comes across the Amalekites, and they're out there throwing a partay. It was one of those situations where as they cross the hill, they can hear them. They're, boom, boom, boom. And they're all like, yoo-hoo, we done whooped everybody, we bad. And they're partying, and David's like, this could not get any better. They're spread out, they're not in any kind of military formation, they're all drunk, so they are throwing down. They all got them a photy, and they ready to go. And so David gets up, gets his sword out and says, all right, boys, let's show them how to fight. And the Bible says that from twilight to evening the next night, they were just killing people. They were just walking through, doing whatever they wanted to. There were only 400 of the enemy that gets away. And the, the, again, the text puts it kind of funny because they snuck off and jumped on camels and got out quick. I, I, I've sat in a lot of sandboxes where we prepared uh, attacks and formations and all that kind of stuff and not once have I ever had alright we need somebody to watch the camels because they can jump them camels and haul out of here so we need to be careful with the camels didn't, didn't have to worry about it but they jump on the candle, camels and out they go David comes up and none of the wives including his own were hurt the, everybody's kids are there nobody had died and not only had all of the the they gotten all their stuff back, but all the spoils from all the Philistine cities around is just theirs. So much so that there's an argument at the end of the chapter about who gets what loot. 
So let's ask our questions. First question, what does this say about God? It says a lot about God. Because David was willing in this situation to put himself in a position that would have destroyed his ability to govern the nation of Israel for the rest of his life. And God kept him from being an idiot. God protected him when he wasn't looking for protection. Later in the story, it seems like he kind of learned his lesson. Because later in the story, before he goes out running after the Amalekites, he stops and prays and says, God, do I go? Do I not go? And God says, go, go do it. So even when David wasn't, so that tells me that God's watching out for me. He loves me. That doesn't mean that bad things aren't going to come into my life. Goodness, this story has been exhausting as we studied through 1 Samuel. Because it's like David's way back last year, God said, okay, you're king. And he's still not wearing a crown. Thing after thing after thing after thing after thing that David wasn't looking for has befallen him. But did you notice in the psalm that he's written here how David is crying out to God? That's again, God protecting David from success. Sometimes the worst thing that can happen to us is us to get what we want. As the great theologian Garth Brooks said, I thank God for unanswered prayers. A few of you got that. So what it says about God is in that situation, he protected David. We also see that he provided for David. In a way that David never expected. When David is there at the Philistine camp, all he's trying to do is make sure that these 600 guys that God has given him, that he makes sure they eat and that their families are taken care of. When he was sent home, you know he had to be going, I don't know what I'm going to do now. I don't know where I'm going to go. We've had situations like that in your life. I know you have. I've had situations where I get a job opportunity. I know that's where God wants me to be. I go to the interview, and it like, feels like it felt good. It felt right. Where they're, they're, they show you around. Oh, this is where Bob works, and this over here is where, where we have our shop. Everything looks good. And then you get a call from the recruiter. Two days later, they hired somebody else. And you're like, what am I going to do now, God? What are you doing? And yet... In a way that David had no idea that God was preparing. In a way that he had no clue what God was doing. God already had the provision worked out. That God provides. That God loves us and he provides. Now, one of the things that I find interesting about this that I've seen in my own life over and over and over again. Is that when I plan things and I think that I've got it all worked out in my mind, how it's going to work and how God's going to do it, it never works out that way, ever. God always works it out, though, in a way, no matter what happens. And I can, I, can I make you a promise from God's Word? No matter what happens in your life, I don't care what it is, from funerals to needing a bail bondsman to graduations and weddings and divorces and life and death, that at the end of your life, you can look back and say, God was faithful. 
He's faithful to bless where he says he'll bless, to provide where he says he'll provide, to punish where he says he'll punish. He's going to do what he said he would do every time. And we see that in David's life, that God was faithful. He provided, pressed down, overflowing. In the period of 48 hours, David goes from, I don't know how I'm going to provide for these guys, to them arguing over who's going to get the most stuff. Like that. The story shifts from, oh my gosh, where are we going to eat to? No, that's mine. Give me that. That's mine. I want it. Quickly, God changes the situation. And God does that in our own our lives over and over and over again. And so your responsibility is not to worry about tomorrow or Wednesday or next month or next year. Your responsibility is today say, God, help me serve you today. Let me follow after you today. Today I'm giving you everything that I've got. And what happens with him, what happens with her, what happens over there, what happens with the job, all that, God, you take care of. Today I'm going after you with everything i got. That's our responsibility. And God will be faithful. I see that in this story. So we ask the question, what does it say about God? We ask the question, what does it say about man? On the one hand, it says that David... When the rubber hit the road, he was ready to just throw it all away. He was ready and willing to walk away from the promises of God. God had said, you're going to be the king of these people. And here he was setting up to fight them. So it tells me that the heart of man is desperately wicked. It tells me, as I read Psalm 63, after that, that even a wicked heart God can use. And I can tell you, of the truths of the Bible, that one's the one I love the most. And you know why? Because I've got a wicked heart. And if I'm not careful, every time I turn around, I go chasing after something shiny like a three-year-old. So, What does it say about God? What does it say about man? And then the last question we ask of this text is how does my life change in the light of this text? What it tells me is I've got to trust Him. And you know what? That's freeing. It's freeing in ministry. When I'm in a husband's living room after he's buried his wife and he looks at me and says, why I can say, I don't know. But I do know that he's faithful in my own life. When things don't work out the way I expect them to, and we're in a borrowed house in a tallow with a couple of changes of clothes, and you go, why, God, are you doing this to me? I was trying to serve you. This text tells me that I can say, I don't know what you're going to do, but I can trust you. Like a little kid, I can crawl up in your lap and, and realize that daddy's got this. It shows me that I have to lean on him. Now I hope 
that us looking at this, peri- uh, this story, the fancy word for it is a pericope, uh, this story, and asking those questions can help you as you read the Bible. That means you can pick up and read it for yourself and just ask those questions. You can ask those questions if you're reading in Luke. You can ask those questions if you're reading in Genesis. Throughout the Bible, what does it say about God? What does it say about man? And how do I change in light of this scripture? Father God, I thank you for your word. Oh God, I'm so thankful that you're faithful. And God, I know there are people here today, there are people who are watching this who desperately need to know that you're faithful and that you will be there. And oh God, I pray that you pour your Holy Spirit out. God, on those that need comfort, you would be the comforter. For those who need a husband, that you would be the husband, God. For those who need a mighty warrior to stand up to tell the enemy to shut his mouth, that you would be that warrior. God, I pray that you would be standing by your people. Oh, God, we need you. God, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your love. God, I pray that you would pour your spirit out on this place at this time. That we would call out on your name. And God, apply your word to your people. In Jesus' name, amen.